know about this? And then secondly, what do you want me to do about it? And the problem is that so many of us re- reverse this in our prayers. Many of us say, God, this is what I want you to know, and this is what I want you to do. You know, it's kind of like we, we feel like, how many prayer meetings have you been in where the majority of the prayer is updating God on where people are at? You know, we pray for Sue, she's got this, you know, you know, growth on her arm, and, you know, and we're just going on and on about the whole laundry list of things that are important and good, but God's already aware of that. But our prayers usually are, God, this is what I want you to know, this is what I want you to do. Instead of, God, what do you want me to know, and what do you want me to do? Jamie and Donna Winship, who teach the video component of our small group series, have said that that's really the summary of the whole book of Acts. Christians are getting persecuted, they're getting thrown in jail, and and instead of saying, God, stop it, why are you doing this, you know, hold off, they're saying, God, okay, what do you want us to know? You're in control, so what do you want us to know about this, and what do you want us to do? And how that has the ability to revolutionize uh, our lives. Today we want to discover and live in our true identity. Unfortunately, sometimes we live out false identities that we have inherited along the way. Things that uh, derive from incidents that involve fear, guilt, and shame. And we hold on to these things, and they, they have strong Im- impressions and impact upon us. I read this week about a guy uh, named James Belasco. He wrote a book called Teaching the Elephant to Dance. And he describes how trainers shackle young elephants with heavy chains to deeply embedded stakes. In that way, the elephant learns to stay in its place. Older, powerful elephants never try to leave, even though they have the, the strength to pull the stake and walk away. Their conditioning <coughs> has limited their movements. With only a small metal bracelet around their foot attached to nothing, they stand in place even though the stakes are actually gone. I think how, how true, how we have a painful experience happen to us maybe early in life and as I said, maybe it involves fear or guilt or shame, and we, we internalize that. And as much as we want to reject that, we end up living that out and playing that out throughout our life, and we, we can easily adopt false identities. And the question is, how do we uh, find our identity in the Lord? How do we um, leave the shackles behind and find freedom in Him? There's a short video that I, I want to play for you I found on the internet, and it's horrible audio requir- uh, quality, but um, I, I love what Jamie has to say. He's one of the teachers of the midweek Bible study. Let's take a listen to this, and we'll continue. So God wants you to live, this is what he wants. He wants you, he longs for you, this is his design for you, to live fearlessly in your true identity. That's what he wants for you. That's what he wants. If you will learn to live fearlessly in your true identity, you will win the world. You will bear much fruit. You will. Organically, it will happen. Here's why it's not happening. Because we're afraid, and we don't live in our true identities. We live in false identities. We do. So what's a false identity? A false identity is an identity that I receive, that I own, that I take on, that's not from God. There it is. That's a false identity. It comes from the world. It comes from my view of myself. It comes from the enemy. And I take that false view on myself and I begin to live it out. Right? So our identity informs what behavior. So if I think I'm unworthy, I will live like an unworthy person lives. 
If I feel shame in my life, I will do what shameful people do. And most of what shameful people do is in secrecy and darkness. That's what you do. Unworthy people do things in isolation and in, dis in despair. Fearful people just don't do anything because they're afraid of everything. So identity becomes, fear becomes my identity. Shame becomes my identity. Unworthiness becomes my identity because someone said to me, yeah, you're not very good at that. When I'm a little kid, I'm like, oh, really? Hmm, yeah, that's true, I'm not good at that. And you shouldn't, you're probably not gonna make this group, so. I'm like, ah, oh, why am I not gonna make it? The enemy's right there to help you. Because you're a loser. Like, is that hard for you to see? And I'm like, ah, oh, yeah, no, I can see that. Because whenever the enemy speaks to you, it takes no faith to believe what he says. Listen, whenever the enemy talks to you, it takes no faith to believe what he says about you. You are not as good as that. I love that. Whenever the enemy speaks, it takes no faith to hear what he says. I wish that it was easier to hear God's voice, and it was so clear, but we know that uh, the voice of the enemy is, is loud and clear. It rings out, and the voice of our culture and the world reinforces that, and it's the voice that we have to tune out to listen for God's voice through Scripture, through wise counsel, through all the ways that we talked about. So we want to look today at Philippians 3 to see what this passage has to say about our new identity in Christ, which I'm calling our kingdom identity. The Apostle Paul wrote to the church at Philippi in the first century. Uh, Philippi is now in what we, we call East Macedonia in Greece, and he's writing from a prison cell in Rome. Uh, he's writing this letter about 30 years after he was converted on the Damascus Road, and this is what he says. He says, finally, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same thing again is no trouble for me, and it's a safeguard for you. Stop there for a moment. What a statement that here's a prisoner shackled in chains for preaching the gospel who's encouraging free people outside of jail to remember to rejoice in the Lord. Paul is living out his faith. He's saying that I have learned that my identity and my joy does not come from circumstances. My peace is found in the sovereignty of God. I don't know what he's doing right now, but I trust that he's in control. Huge message there. He says in verse 2, Beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the false circumcision. It was common for some Jews in early centuries to refer to Gentiles as non-Jews as dogs, which were considered unclean animals in the day. And Paul uses this term to describe the Judaizers. The Judaizers were the sect of Judaism that would mutilate their bodies. They would literally cut themselves and do all of this stuff in order to uh, be in right relationship with God. It was their belief that if they did all of this physical brutalization of the body, of the flesh, that that would put them in a right relationship with God. And Paul is calling them out on that. Verse 3, he says, For we are the true circumcision, who worship the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Paul lists circumcision first um, among his list of accomplishments because uh, this was huge to the Judaizers. 
Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. Paul is going to start listing his pedigree, all of his accomplishments, the things that involve his, his heritage and uh, his background. For two reasons, not only to prove his superiority to these Judaizers, but also to list the things that he used to put confidence in before coming to faith in Christ. In Galatians 1, verse 14, he said, I was far ahead of my fellow Jews in my zeal for the traditions of my ancestors. So we have to remember, Paul was like the cream of the crop. When Paul is saying these things, it it carries a lot of weight because he was the upper echelon of Judaism. Verse 5, he says, I was circumcised on the eighth day. And the eighth day stressed that he wasn't a proselyte, meaning a convert to Judaism, or uh, Ishmaelite, but he was a pure-blooded Jew. And God had told Abraham that every male, uh, in, in Genesis 17, every male among the tribes of Israel needed to be circumcised at eight, eight, eight days of age. Proselytes were usually circumcised later in Ishmaelites at age uh, 13. But a true Jew needed to be circumcised on the eighth day. He goes on to say, not only was I circumcised on the eighth day, but I'm of the nation of Israel. He's saying my heritage is genuinely Jewish. Both of my parents are Jews, unlike some of the Judaizers. I can trace my family lineage all the way back to Abraham. He's saying I'm a true member of the covenant people. I'm also of the tribe of Benjamin. To say that he was a Benjamite was to say that he was one from one of the most favorite tribes, from the tribe from which the first king came, uh, a, a tribe that had a special place of honor and was viewed with great esteem. Even after the kingdom divided, the tribe of Benjamin remain, remained loyal to the house of David. And he's claiming here that he wasn't simply an Israelite, um, but he also belonged to the highest aristocracy of the faith. It's like saying, uh, if it, it, it was equivalent in, in England as saying that you came over with the Normans, or in America that you could trace your descent all the way back to the pilgrims. He's saying, I'm of the highest class of Jews. He goes on to say, I was a Hebrew of Hebrews, or I am a Hebrew of Hebrews, saying, I, I've retained my native tongue. I haven't become Hellenized, which means to adopt the Greek culture. Many of the people that came from other countries would become Hellenized, uh, taking on the Greek language and the customs of the culture. But Paul says, I have laboriously maintained the customs and traditions of my people, of the Hebrews, and I still speak in my native Hebrew tongue. He goes on to say that he was a Pharisee. The Pharisees, as you know, were one of the strictest sects of Judaism. There was only 6,000 Pharisees at any one time. And he's saying, I was part of this elite group. Their very name means the separated ones. And they separated themselves from all common uh, tasks of of life in order that they might observe even the smallest details of the law. And he's saying, that's how I found my identity. Verse 6, as to zeal, I was a persecutor of the church. And as to the righteousness, which is in the law found blameless. You probably couldn't demonstrate zeal in any greater way as a Jew than to attack the Christian church, which was viewed as the enemy. 
And none of the Judaizers could say that they attacked relentlessly and passionately as Paul did before his conversion. Verse 7, he says, But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. No doubt Paul made the switch uh, in his mindset and in his confidence in the flesh to confidence in Christ alone when he met Christ on the Damascus Road. Verse 8, More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them but rubbish so that I might gain Christ. The surpassing knowledge of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. We have to remember throughout this series that biblical knowledge is, is more than head knowledge. It's more than facts and information and data that we accumulate and store in our heads. It's about experiential knowledge. It's an intimate passionate knowledge of God that ends up not only informing us, but transforming us. He continues in verse 9, and that I might not just know him, but I might be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Verse 10, that I might know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. I like how William Bar- commentator William Barclay, how he puts, uh, describes this knowledge of God. He says, to know Christ means that we share the way he walked, that we share the cross he bore, that we share the death he died, and finally, and most importantly, that we share the life that he lives forever. That's what it means to be a disciple of Christ, following after him sharing with him in his sufferings and his death and his resurrection and the life that he now lives, the new life that he gives us. That word or that phrase, becoming like him in the, in the Greek language, means literally uh, an inward conformity that um, has to do with, with the thing that we're being conformed to. And it differs from... We usually think of conformity as bad, like in Romans chapter 12 when it says, don't be conformed any longer to the pattern or the mold of this world that's an outward pressure or conformity, kind of peer pressure or culture. But this is speaking of a, an inward transformation, a conformity from the inside out as we're being conformed into Christ's image. Verse 11, in order that I might attain to the resurrection from the dead. And some people are troubled by this as if, did Paul doubt whether he was going to be resurrected one day? But most think that he's he's speaking of the rapture. And he's expressing the the wish and the thought that hopefully I can live to the day of Christ's return. Hopefully I'm alive when he comes to claim his church. Verse 12, not that I have already obtained it or already become perfect, but I press on in order that I might lay hold of that for which also... I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brothers and sisters, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul pursued Christ-likeness with enthusiasm and persistence, just as a, a runner in the Greek games. Paul vigorously sought 
to win the prize for which God had called him heavenward. And he's painting a beautiful picture here because the athletes who would win in the, in the Greek games would go to the judge's stand where, where the judge was seated to receive their reward. And how picturesque that is of one day how we will stand before the throne of God and receive the rewards for the things that we have done in his name. Well, verse 15, let us therefore, as many as are perfect, have this attitude. And if anything, you have a different attitude, God will reveal that also to you. However, let us keep living by that same standard to which we have attained. Brothers and sisters, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the power that you, the pattern that you have in us. For many walk of whom I have often told you and now tell you even weeping that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. The Philippians understood what it meant to be a citizen of another place because they lived in Philippi, but their citizenship was in Rome. Their true citizenship was in heaven, really in Israel, but, you know, Rome had conquered uh, Israel, and so they were citizens of Rome even though they lived in Philippi. Similarly, as Christians, obviously we live on this world, but we know that it's not our final destination. We know that we're citizens of heaven, of God's kingdom. And all of this contrasts with verse 19, those in verse 19 whose minds and lives were exclusively focused on earthly things. Our minds and our lives are not to be wrapped up in worldly things because this isn't it for us. There's more to come. He closes in verse 21, speaking, Our Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of its glory by the exertion of the power that he has, even to subject all things to himself. And this word of being conformed into Christ's image is the same word that was back in verse 10 that we talked about. It's the word metamorphosis. And it describes that transformation that we know so well. And that's what God promises to do in the lives of believers. Well, what does this amazing passage tell us about our new identity in Christ? Our kingdom identity. There's an outline for you in the bulletin if you want to take notes. And I believe there's at least five new aspects or characteristics of our kingdom identity that this passage reveals. The first is that as, as believers, we have a new set of values. A new set of values. It's kind of the new math. In the new math, gains are now losses. The things that I used to prize... The things that I used to be very prideful in, that I used to, to think that, oh, I've made it, I've achieved it, now, Paul says, have actually become losses for me. Verse 7, whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as a loss for the sake of the kingdom. Our new kingdom identity means that we operate on the basis of a new set of values. The things that we once took pride in, the ways that we found validation, our old moral code or standard, the importance of material possessions, our view of things temporal versus things eternal, all of these things are changing because of the new set of values that we have through God's kingdom and our new kingdom identity. 
And it's not to say that we can't enjoy the things that we used to enjoy. But the difference is, is that these things no longer define us. These things no longer drive us. But we, we hold them in their proper perspective. Well, secondly, we not only have a new values, we have a new righteousness. A righteousness that's by faith in Christ rather than a righteousness derived from the law. Call it a new metric, if you will, a new measurement. Verse 9, that I might be found in him not having a righteousness of my own, derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. My kingdom identity means that I measure myself by a new metric. It's not about what I do to try and make myself right with God. That's what religion is. Religion is man's endless attempt to become right with God. Christianity is different from religion because Christianity is about what God has already done to make us right with him through the cross. That's what makes Christianity distinct. And so what God has done to make us right with him through Christ and through the cross is forever. It's not temporary. It's not this endless quest or search. And Christ becomes our standard of measurement. Not other people. It's not how do I compare against this person or that person. But Christ is my standard, my absolute of holiness and righteousness. Paul says in Ephesians 4 verse 13, Until we all come to such unity in our faith and knowledge of God's Son, that we will be mature in the Lord, measuring up to the full and complete standard of Christ. Christ is the standard, and God is transforming us and working in us until we measure up to the full measure of Christ. Nothing less. What a beautiful promise. Well, thirdly, our kingdom identity means that we have a new goal. The upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Verses 13 and 14. He says, Beloved, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching or straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. God's given me a new set of values. He's given me a new righteousness, a new way by which I measure myself. And all of this leads to having a new goal, and the goal is Christ. My kingdom identity, Jesus is not only my standard, but he's the one that I'm seeking. He's the one that I'm passionately pursuing in relationship. You know, the reality is that most of our world is pursuing relationships with one another, not with God, pursuing material possessions, pursuing careers. And honestly, much of the time, we're not any different from the world. We, we play the same game, you know? We're put here on this earth, and we're just trying to make it and survive and play the game. And so we're often pursuing the same things that the world pursues. And Jesus never condemns that in the Gospels, but he says those things will never sustain you. Those things will never satisfy you. They will never be enough. That's an endless pursuit. And so that's why he says, seek first my kingdom and my righteousness, and all of these other things will be added unto you. That's the trick. Author and speaker Oz Guinness, in an article in Christianity Today, says, the problem with Christians in America is not 
that they aren't where they should be. It's that they're not what they should be right where they are. I love that. The problem is not that we're not where God wants us to be. He's sovereign in that. You are where God wants you to be. But are you the person he wants you to be where you are? That's, that's the trick. That's the challenge. Our new kingdom identity recalculates our priorities. And it challenges us to see the emptiness of, of lesser goals. When, when Christ is my standard, when he is my goal, other goals fade in comparison. They just, they're, they're not as attractive and as enticing as they once were when I compare them to Christ. And that's why Christ needs to be my standard. <clears throat> I fumbled upon a 16th century pastor and author and theologian this week by the name of Henry Skugel. I had never heard of the guy before. But I love what he had to say. It's as if he's speaking to our generation. He says, The greatest business of our calling is to advance divine life in the world to frame and mold the souls of people into conformity to God, to enlighten their understandings and inform their judgments, rectify their wills and order their passions and sanctify their affections. The world lies in sin, and it is our work to awaken people out of their deadly sleep, to rescue them out of that dismal condition. We are the instruments of God for effecting these great designs. And though we be not accountable for the success when we have done what lies within our power, yet nothing below this should be our aim. And we should never cease our endeavors until that gracious change be wrought in every person committed to our charge. Never settling for any lesser goal than the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And we should never cease our efforts until everyone is on board with following Christ and knowing Christ. What an awesome goal. Well, all of this leads to a new citizenship. And a new citizenship, in verse 20, is basically a new identity. An, ident an identity that's based on the kingdom of heaven rather than the kingdom of this earth. Our new citizenship means that we have a kingdom identity. And this new identity constantly reminds us that earth is not the end all and be all. It's not our final destination. There's more to come. This is a preview of coming attractions. It means that we don't have to frantically live as if, you know, I got to take it all in, I got to seize every opportunity, I got to enjoy everything, try everything, because otherwise it might pass me by and I'm going to be left disenchanted and empty. Now, that's the way to become disenchanted and empty, is to live frantically thinking that unless I live for myself and step on whoever I need to step on to climb to the top and experience everything and try everything, that I'm going to miss out. The truth is that. God has saved us, he's redeemed us, and we are going to live forever. And so time is no longer our enemy. And as we read scripture, scripture speaks of, of heaven as a reperfected earth, getting to enjoy the beauty of, of this earth and all that it offers without sin, reperfected. You know, what's the rush to grab all the things that Satan says that we need right now? Like the fruit in the garden. 
You know, God knows if you try this, there's going to be another dimension of your life that you're missing right now. And that fruit is symbolic of all the things today that he dangles in front of us and says, your life's pretty good, but you know, if you tried this, if you added this, if you got out of this relationship and got into this relationship, if you bailed on this job and tried this job, man, then it's really going to come alive. And it's a lie. It's, it's deception. Our new citizenship involves a new kingdom identity. Finally, we have a new hope. And our hope is to be transformed through conformity. As I said, most of the time we think conformity is a bad thing, but the bad part is what you're conformed to. If you're conformed to the pattern of this world, that's bad. If you're conformed into the image of Jesus Christ, that's good. Especially if that's a conformity that's from the inside out, which is what Scripture speaks about. Verse 21 says that Christ will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3.18, we all with unveiled face beholding as in the mirror the glory of God are being transformed through the Holy Spirit from glory to glory, reminding us that transformation doesn't take place someday when we die and go to heaven or when heaven comes to us, whatever you want to talk about. But transformation begins the moment you receive Christ as Savior. God is working in you right now, conforming you to his image. That's the beauty. I read a funny article this week where the guy said, consider two superheroes, Batman and Spider-Man. Batman is a rich and strong man who uh, has lots of cool gadgets. His superpowers stem from his external possessions. Spider-Man, on the other hand, has a few accessories, but he's a superhero because of the spider powers he obtained when he was bitten by a radioactive spider. His nature has been changed. Now he has a new power accessible to him, within him. I like that. It's not that as Christians we have access to all of these gadgets that we can wield and, and use to our advantage. It's that... The, spirit, the same spirit that raised Christ Jesus from the dead now lives in us. And we have a new power, the Holy Spirit at work in us, transforming us and helping us to do what we never thought we could do. As we close today, I just want to challenge you that there's nothing more exciting than knowing the purpose for which you were created. And I challenge you to spend time in listening prayer saying, God, what, what's my identity in you? What is, what is the name that you call me by? What is that, that gift or ability that, that defines me in you, that you, you want me to be used for in your kingdom? Because the truth is that each one of us was created uniquely. God didn't make the body imagery in Scripture. God didn't make us all to be arms or legs or heads, but the body works together for the glory of, of God. And the truth is there aren't a hundred other people that can do what you can do, but God has uniquely gifted you and called you for the purposes that he has for you. And so it's important to discover what is my identity in you? How is it that you want me to not only be used by you, but to find deep contentment and fulfillment in life? Let's pray. Lord God, 
As we continue in the series on identity, I pray that you would continually speak to us about what it is that we need to know specifically and then what we need to do about that, that we wouldn't just be unloading our requests upon you, but that we would be listening to you and that you would speak truth into our lives, that you would increasingly call us by our identity in you, that we would strip away the false identities that have deceived us and and shackled us for too long now that revolve around fear, guilt, and shame. And that through the power of your Holy Spirit, we would we would shed the condemnation that Scripture says is no longer part of our kingdom identity. There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so God, help us to live as free people. Help us to seize the day. Help us to live according to the purpose that you've created us. Lord, as we receive an offering today, as always, would you bless this offering and multiply it for the needs of our church and for the needs of the world and those that we support who are involved in your kingdom work. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.
our identity in Christ alone. May you speak truth into our lives and rip away, strip away the deception and the lies that we have bought into, that we have unconsciously adopted as truth. May our truth be defined by your word and what we read on the, in the pages of scripture. May our, our truth be defined by what Christ said and what he lived by. And Lord, as you speak and name us by that new name, may we find great fulfillment and great joy in living out that identity in your kingdom. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless.